section forty two of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter sixty four the eastern question again part three the insurrection continued to spread and at last it was determined by some of the western powers that the time had come for european intervention count andrassy the austrian minister drew up a note which was to be addressed to the port in this note austria germany and russia united in a declaration that the promises of reform made by the port had not been carried into effect and that some combined action by the powers of europe was necessary to insist on the fulfilment of the many engagements which turkey had made and broken the note declared that if something of the kind was not done the governments of servia and montenegro would be compelled by the enthusiasm of their populations to support the insurrection in the turkish provinces and that the only means of preventing a general outbreak was a firm resolution on the part of the western powers to compel turkey to redress the grievances of which the christian populations complained this note was dated december thirtieth eighteen seventy five and it was communicated to the powers which had signed the treaty of paris france and italy were ready at once to join in it but england delayed in fact lord derby held off so long that it was not until he had received a dispatch from the port itself requesting his government to join in the note that he at last consented to take part in the remonstrance the turkish government seemed to have desired the presence of england in this movement as one desires the presence of a secret ally rightly or wrongly the statesmen of constantinople had got it into their heads that england was their devoted friend bound by her own interest to protect them against whatever opposition instead therefore of regarding england's cooperation in the andrassy note as one other influence brought to compel them to fulfil their engagements they seem to have accepted it as a secret force working on their side to enable them to escape from their responsibilities lord derby joined in the andrassy note it was sent to the port the ottoman government showed some cleverness in their way of meeting the difficulty they accepted politely all or nearly all the demands addressed to them expressed in cool and pleasant terms their entire satisfaction with the kindly suggestions made to them declared themselves rather gratified than otherwise to have their attention called to any little omissions on their part and promised to carry out in the readiest manner the suggestions which the note contained turkey did nothing more than promise she took no step to meet the demands made by the european powers after a few weeks it became perfectly evident that she had not only done nothing but had never intended to do anything russia therefore proposed that the three imperial ministers of the continent should meet at berlin and consider what steps should be taken in order to make the andrassy note a reality a document called the berlin memorandum was drawn up in which the three powers pointed out the increasing danger of disturbance in the southeast of europe and the necessity for at once carrying into effect the objects of the andrassy note 
it was proposed that arms should be suspended for two months between the port and the insurgent provinces and that meanwhile peace should be negotiated and that the consuls and the delegates of the european powers should watch over the carrying out of the proposed reforms the memorandum ended with a significant intimation that if the period of suspension of arms were allowed to pass without the desired objects being attained or at least approached there must be an agreement among the powers as to the further measures which might be called for in the interest of the general peace the meaning of all this was perfectly clear the andrassy note had invited turkey's attention to her unfulfilled engagements turkey had admitted her deficiencies and promised to supply them the berlin memorandum now proposed to consider the measures by which to enforce on turkey the fulfilment of her broken promises it was distinctly implied that should turkey fail to comply force would be used to compel her but on the other hand it is clear that this was a menace which would of itself have ensured the object it is out of the question to suppose that turkey would have thought of resisting the concerted action of england france austria germany russia and italy the threat of combined action was in itself the surest guarantee of peace the situation was described very effectively by lord granville a year or two later a man is making a disturbance in the street if one peaceful inhabitant remonstrates and interferes it is very likely that his interference will only lead to further violence but if half a dozen policemen come up it is more than probable that the disturber will go quietly away this is a fair illustration of the condition of things in europe and of the sense and spirit of the berlin memorandum overwhelming and irresistible force was to be brought to bear against turkey in order that turkey might have no possible excuse or opportunity for attempting resistance unfortunately however lord derby and the english government did not see their way to join in the berlin memorandum lord derby it seems was of opinion that a secret agreement between germany austria and russia had existed since eighteen seventy three and he feared to allow england to be drawn into what might have been a dangerous complication other english statesmen were convinced that russia was all the while secretly stirring up that discontent in the christian provinces which the western powers were using as an argument for intervention lord derby had to decide and it seems to us he decided in the wrong way he refused to join in the berlin memorandum not merely did he refuse to join in it but he made no suggestion as to any other course which might be taken if the memorandum was abandoned the refusal of england was fatal to the project the memorandum was never presented concert between the european powers was for the time at an end from that moment everyone in western europe knew that war was certain in the east a succession of startling events kept public attention on the strain there was an outbreak of mussulman fanaticism at salonica and the french and german consuls were murdered a revolutionary demonstration took place in constantinople and the sultan abdulaziz was dethroned the miserable abdulaziz committed suicide in a day or two after this was the sultan who had been received in england with so much official ceremony and public acclaim 
it was he who had been welcomed at windsor had been entertained by the corporation of london had been the lion of the season and the sensation of the sightseeing public at the time when he was feasted and applauded in london the cretan insurrection was going on and his troops were doing the business of repression with an unsparing cruelty worthy of the soldans of the middle ages his death by his own hand in a fit of despair as he found himself dethroned deserted lonely and hated was a strange close for the career which had begun with so much promise and amid such universal expectation at the time of the crimean war his nephew murad was made sultan in his place murad reigned only three months and was then dethroned and his brother hamid put in his place suddenly the attention of the english public was called away to events more terrible than palace revolutions in constantinople an insurrection had broken out in bulgaria and the turkish government sent large numbers of bashi bazooks and other irregular troops to crush it they did not however stay their hand when the insurrection had been crushed repression soon turned into massacre rumours began to reach constantinople of hideous wholesale murders committed in bulgaria the constantinople correspondent of the daily news investigated the evidence and found it but too true in a few days after accounts were laid before the british public of the deeds which ever since have been known as the bulgarian atrocities a story was told of the wholesale massacre of women and children such as could hardly have found its parallel in the worst days of an earlier byzantine rule or under the odious reign of the later sovereigns of delhi nothing could have been more ill-advised and unfortunate than the manner in which mr disraeli at first dealt with these terrible stories he treated them with a levity which jarred harshly on the ears of almost all listeners it was plain that he did not believe them or attach any importance to them no one ever supposed that he was really wanting in humanity it is certain that if he had believed such crimes were committed he would have been incapable of excusing them or making light of them but he did not believe in any of the stories he set them down too hastily as mere figment of rumour and the newspaper correspondent and what he called coffee-house babble he took no trouble to examine the testimony on which they rested he therefore thought himself warranted in dealing with them as if they were merely stories to laugh at he evidently did not know much about the turkish provinces of our day or about turkish affairs in general he endeavoured to make out that the bashi bazooks were really the residents and occupiers of bulgaria he described them as circassians who had been settled there long since with the approval of all europe he reproached the liberal party with the lack of sympathy they now showed for a race of beings in whom they once professed such an interest mr disraeli's ideas of bulgaria were evidently drawn from vague reminiscences of voltaire's candide and he depicted the bulgarians as cruel oppressors of the bashi bazooks he expressed entire scepticism as to the tortures said to have been inflicted on their victims by the turkish soldiery oriental races he gravely observed did not usually have recourse to torture they generally terminated their connection with culprits in a more expeditious manner all this might have been what the german quack and scots antiquary calls very witty and comedy 
but the house was not exactly in the vein for mirth. Mr. Disraeli had always the faculty of persuading himself to believe or disbelieve anything according as he liked. The statesman who could really persuade himself into the belief that Oriental races did not usually have recourse to torture might well persuade himself of anything. Probably for the time, Mr. Disraeli actually believed that the Bashi Bazooks were gentle exiles of the class of Thaddeus of Warsaw, sweetly incapable of harming any creature. But the house in the country would have preferred the Prime Minister in a different mood just then. The subject proved to be far too serious for light-hearted treatment. Mr. Disraeli felt this way afterwards, and made an attempt to persuade the country that there was no levity in his talk about the oriental way of terminating the connection with a culprit. Mr. Baring, the English consul, sent out specially to Bulgaria to make inquiries, and who was supposed to be in general sympathy with Turkey, reported that no fewer than 12,000 persons had been killed in the district of Philippopolis. He confirmed substantially some of the most shocking details of the massacre of women and children, which had been given by Mr. McGann, a correspondent whom the Daily News had sent out to the spot, to see with his own eyes and report what he saw. There was no disputing the significance of some of that testimony. The defenders of the Turks insisted that the only deaths were those which took place in fight, insurgents on one side, Turkish soldiers on the other but Mr. Baring, as well as the daily news correspondents, saw whole masses of the dead bodies of women and children piled up in places where the bodies of no combatants were to be seen. The women and children were simply massacred. The Turkish government may not have known at first of the deeds that were done by their soldiers, but it is certain that after the facts had been forced upon their attention, they conferred new honors on the chief perpetrators of the crimes which shocked the moral sense of all Europe. Mr. Bright happily described the agitation which followed in England as an uprising of the English people. At first it was an uprising without a leader. Soon, however, it had a chief of incomparable energy and power. Mr. Gladstone came out of his semi-retirement. He threw aside polemics and criticism, he forgot for a while Homer and the Pope. He flung himself into the agitation against Turkey with the impassioned energy of a youth. He made speeches in the House of Commons and out of it. He attended monster meetings indoors and out of doors. He published pamphlets. He wrote letters. He brought forward motions in Parliament. He denounced the crimes of Turkey and the policy which would support Turkey with an eloquence that for the time set England aflame. After a while, no doubt, there set in a sort of reaction against the fervent mood. The country could not long continue in this white heat of excitement. Some men began to protest against the sentimental in politics. Others grew tired of hearing Turkey denounced. Others again complained that they had got too much of the Bulgarian atrocities. Moreover, Mr. Disraeli and his supporters were able to work with great effect on that strong, deep-rooted feeling of the modern Englishman, his distrust and dread of Russia. Mr. Gladstone was accused of acting in such a manner as to make himself the instrument of Russian designs on Constantinople. He had in his pamphlet, Bulgarian Horrors and the Question of the East, 
insisted that the only way to secure any permanent good for the christian provinces of turkey was to turn the turkish officials bag and baggage out of them what people called the bag and baggage policy was denounced as a demand for the expulsion of the turks all the turks the turkish men and women out of europe of course what mr gladstone meant was exactly what he said that the rule of turkish officialdom should cease in the christian provinces that these provinces should have autonomous governments subject to the sultan not that all the individual turks should be turned out but the cry went forth that he had called for the expulsion of the turks from europe and that the moment the turks went out of constantinople the russians must come in nothing could have been better suited to rouse up reaction and alarm a sudden and strong revulsion of feeling took place in favour of the government mr gladstone was honestly regarded by millions of englishmen as the friend and instrument of russia mr disraeli as the champion of england and the enemy of england's enemy mr disraeli was like another chatham bidding england be of good cheer and hurling defiance at her foes mr disraeli by this time there was no mr disraeli the eleventh of august eighteen seventy six was an important day in the parliamentary history of england mr disraeli made then his last speech in the house of commons it was a speech filled for the most part with banter and ridicule directed against those who were leading the agitation against the government but toward the close mr disraeli struck a louder and a stronger note he sustained and defended the policy of the government as an imperial policy the object of which was to maintain the empire of england nor will we ever agree to any step though it may obtain for a moment comparative quiet and a false prosperity that hazards the existence of that empire the house of commons little knew that these were the last words it was to hear from mr disraeli the secret was well kept it was made known only to the newspapers that night next morning all england knew that benjamin disraeli had become earl of beaconsfield the title once intended for burke had come to the author of vivian gray everybody was well satisfied that if mr disraeli liked an earldom he should have it his political career had had claims enough to any reward of the kind that his sovereign could bestow if he had battled for honour it was fair that he should have the prize coming as it did just then the announcement of his elevation to the peerage seemed like a defiance flung in the face of those who would arraign his policy the attacks made on mr disraeli were to be answered by lord beaconsfield his enemies had become his footstool End of section forty two